0: Uh, just a quick question before we get started. Who's excited about the barbecue this afternoon? All right, like 10 of us. It's awesome. All right, let's, uh, let's try this again. Who's excited about the barbecue this afternoon? Yeah, all right. See, hey, sometimes our reaction to good news isn't what it ought to be. And God is gracious. He gives us a second chance. Jonah finds himself in the place where he is facing incredibly good and exciting news. He has just seen and just heard that God has relented from pouring out judgment upon the city of Nineveh. You'd expect when he hears this good news, when he's confronted with it, when he sees it for himself, that his reaction would be excitement, would be encouragement. He would be thrilled with the awesome grace and mercy of God. And yet, what we find out is that his response to the grace of God is not what it ought to be. In fact, look with me, let's back up in chapter 3. And we'll begin at verse 10 just to kind of recap and read the first four verses of chapter four. Follow along with me. It says this, when God saw that they did, or what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? This news of God relenting, not punishing this wicked nation should have been thrilling to Jonah. But instead, Jonah responds to the grace of God in such an incredible way, it ought to be staggering to our minds as we read these words, and I hope there was a sense of shock as you read Jonah's response. Let's look at how Jonah begins to think about God's grace, and let's look how his response unfolds to these four verses. First, notice this, I'm angry, I'm angry. This is what Jonah feels internally. His emotional response to the grace of God is utter fury. There is outrage in Jonah as he surveys the scene of a spared Nineveh. Notice verse 1 of chapter 4, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Now, it's really difficult for the English to adequately capture what the intent of the Hebrew is here. It's hard to kind of get the grammar just right, but the verb here for displeased, it gives the sense of evil, okay? or wrong. And there may be a note in your ESV. My, my Bible has a note at the bottom of the ESV, and it, it says this. I think it expresses the right understanding of what's being conveyed here. It was exceedingly evil to Jonah. Now just think about that for a second. Jonah's looking at the grace of God, and to him in this moment, he views it as exceedingly, that's a superlative, greatly evil to God this is shocking. What in the world is going on here? As Jonah looks at the amazing thing God has done in rescuing and redeeming Nineveh, he feels that it isn't good, it isn't amazing, it isn't wonderful. In fact, Jonah says it's evil. His anger boils over. How could God ever give his grace to these Assyrians, to Israel's great enemy, to these moral monsters? They don't need grace, Jonah thinks. They need judgment. One commentator said it like this. I like this. Bad behavior, this is Jonah's logic, okay? Bad behavior should lead to a bad end, and Jonah takes it very badly that it does not. The halting of God's anger against Nineveh is the signal for Jonah's anger against God to begin. He fails to take his cue from God. Did you notice that? His reaction strikes a wrong note in the logic of the story, in the flow of this story. If you've been with us up to this point, what we've seen is this amazing working in sovereignty and providence of God, flow of events, and all of a sudden, what sounds, you know, it sounds like a beautiful tune being played as God's grace is being put on display, and all of a sudden, it's like, bang. Here's Jonah with this outstanding, shocking reaction to the grace of God. And it's so shocking, look, because we know what Jonah has gone through. We know what Jonah has experienced. Who is Jonah to complain, especially since he himself was recently so glad to be saved from incredible destruction? The one who praises God's mercy in chapter 4 now despises it in chapter 4. Excuse me, chapter 2, he praises it. In chapter 4, he deplores and despises it. Jonah's reaction is utterly unbelievable. In fact, it's infuriating. His reputation, isn't this true as we look at Jonah? His reputation grows worse and worse with every syllable he utters. How dare he argue with God? did not you feel that inside? Isn't there a sense about how dare he do what he's doing? How dare he get angry with God after God has been so kind and gracious and merciful? Just quick survey, real quick. You can show of hands here. How many people think here, how many people can see here the utter hypocrisy and the absurdly irrational behavior being exhibited by Jonah? Show of hands. Everybody see that? Everybody, yeah, pretty much. Good, good. Because here's what you don't see. There's a trap that's been set for you and I. And we've walked right into it. Because here's the reality. I'm Jonah. (laughs) I do the same things Jonah does. I'm capable of the same kind of responses to God's grace as Jonah is and all along here the author here which I believe is Jonah is building this case and he wants to rope us in so that we're angered by Jonah's response only to let us know that we too can be guilty of the very same things that Jonah is doing here. We've said this time and time again throughout this little book. I am Jonah. Our objective here is to look at Jonah, and and as we're looking at God and seeing his great grace, we are to look at Jonah and see ourselves reflected as if we are looking in a mirror. There are times, listen, in each of our lives, isn't this true, when the wisdom of God doesn't seem wise to us. There are times in each of our lives where the love of God doesn't seem very loving to us. And there are times when the grace of God in our lives does not seem right to us. Rather than rejoicing in God's grace, we can be outraged by it. And I've seen this time and time again in different circumstances and events. In fact, a true story. I know a man who struggled with pornography for a great season of his life, a married man and he was exposed, he was caught uh, and his sin was brought to light and he reacted the right way by humbling himself in true repentance and true contrition by confessing his sin and going to the church leadership and seeking help and, and longing to be restored, longing to have a life of purity and by God's grace, through his right response and through the help of people in his life, he began to see great victories in this area of his life. He grew in purity, he grew in his hatred to this sin in his life, and his wife all along watching this unfold, his wife who at one point would have longed for the day where her husband was freed from the slavery to this sin, was becoming embittered and angry as she watched her husband gain more and more joy in the Lord. She began to question the goodness of God in her own life. God, is this right? Is this fair that he can get off so easily? Look what he's done to me. scary how sometimes we don't even realize what's happening in our hearts. Where she once would have pleaded for God's grace to change her husband, now she resents it and is angered by it. How Many of us would struggle with similar things as we looked maybe at a terrorist who's murdered countless people or a murderer sitting on death row who then turns and asks those whom he has hurt deeply for forgiveness and grace because he has found it in the God of all grace. How many of us instantly want to react with, no, that's not right that somebody should be forgiven for their sins. They deserve punishment for their sins. You see, this impacts all of us to varying degrees. Let me ask you this morning, whom would you rather in your life see judged than graced? Whom would you rather see punished in your life than forgiven? Now we see here that Jonah's anger is utterly unfounded. It's irrational behavior. We see how Jonah feels and reacts to the grace of God, but what's really quite amazing is what Jonah actually believes in the moment. Secondly, he believes this. Look, I'm right. I'm right. I'm justified in believing what I believe here, God. He argues here from the law, for the logic of his rebellion. I want you to see what he does in verse two. Notice this. And he prayed to the Lord and he said, "O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my own country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Do you see what he's just done here? He's justified his previous actions. Now, tell me that doesn't undermine his repentance in chapter 2. Right, do you know that in your own life? The moment you throw like a justification in in your repentance right? I, I, look, I'm so sorry that I spoke to you that way. I'm so sorry that my anger, you know, just, I hurt you in my anger, but you really pushed me over the edge. Bam. You just undermined your repentance. Jonah here, listen, he's arguing for the logic of his rebellion. He uses, this is, this is really helpful to understand. He uses his theology to justify his rebellion. You notice what he does there? His knowledge of God is what he uses to justify his rebellion and fleeing from God to show that it was really originally the best choice. That's what he should have done in the first place. There's a great principle in here for us. Listen to this. Your theology won't always lead you to obedience because your use of theology is dictated by the condition of your heart. And listen, if your heart isn't intent on, if your heart, excuse me, is intent on resisting the plan of God, if your heart isn't saying, God, you are wise, God, you are right, God, you are good, if your heart isn't being driven by your desires, by, if it is being driven by your desires instead of God's desires, you will actually use your theology to justify sin that has no business being justified. The person who gossips will say, I I had to tell people, because God wants more people knowing about this so they can be praying for it, right? Like justifying with theology their actions. Or or the man who's climbing up the corporate ladder and and using manipulation and lacking integrity in doing so, while at the top says, look, if if I didn't get here, I couldn't do God's work like I am now. It's amazing what Jonah says here in verse 2. Did you capture just the, the, the egocentricity of this prayer? Think about this. He's praying to God, and here's what he's saying. I knew, God, I knew you would do this. I knew this is what you were like. I knew, I knew, I knew you would forgive them, God. Uh, he's using that to shame God. Meanwhile, he's heaping shame upon himself. I knew what you were like, God. Just think about that statement. I knew that you were a God of glorious grace and overwhelming mercy. I knew this about you. That's why I ran away. (laughs) Now we see the thinking behind Jonah's fleeing. His greatest fear wasn't that the mission would fail. His greatest fear was that the mission would succeed. Now, these words, um, if you're looking at them in verse 2, they may sound familiar to you. Notice what he says. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. God's people have celebrated God's grace from the earliest of times. God has always put himself forward. He's always revealed himself to be a God of amazing, amazing grace and mercy. And Jonah here, he's actually alluding back to what God declared to Moses in Exodus chapter 34. In fact, it's on the screen behind me. Let's read it together. Look at this. It says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. You can stop there. See, God declared these words, this is so interesting when you think of the historical context, he declared these words to the people of God after he had rescued them from their own rebellion and sin, right? Here goes Moses up to Mount Sinai to hear from God and to bring back the commandments of God to the people of God, and think about this, all after God had mercifully rescued them, right, from the nation, uh, or from Egypt, from bondage and slavery, he brings them out, Moses goes up, he comes back down, and what does he find? He finds the people of God worshiping a golden calf. God is furious at their rebellion. They sinned greatly, and Moses intercedes on behalf of them to God. He pleads with God for mercy. And in that moment, and as every Israelite looked back at that story, what they were reminded of, listen, was that every Israelite knew their sin was great, and they knew the grace of God was greater still. But you see, Jonah had a problem. He felt that God was too slow to anger, that he was too passive in dealing with sin, that he was too merciful. And so he turned what was an affirmation of praise in Exodus into a complaint against God. And here's what's so startling. Jonah was just mercifully saved by the grace of God, and now he despises it. And listen, believers, listen, all you who are loved ones of God, here's here's what you need to see in this. Be warned and be shocked, not just at Jonah, but at what your heart and my heart is capable of. Our hearts can turn this quickly. Do you know that about yourself? Our hearts can turn this quickly. We have the ability to praise God in one moment and despise him in the next. We have the ability to obey one moment and rebel in the next. We have the ability to bow down to him as king in one moment and jump on the throne of our hearts the next. I've seen this time and time again in my own life, haven't you? I mean, there have been times, like if you want to talk about contradictions and hypocrisy in your life, there have been times where I have been studying the word of God, sitting on my couch, praying, thanking God for his mercy and grace. And then my kids come running in the room and interrupt my time with the Lord. And I can blurt out in anger, how dare you get out of here? I'm trying to study the Bible. Do you see the contradiction? Our hearts, our hearts can turn so quickly and it's a sad reality that each one of us face. They're deceptive. The flesh pulls hard and it wrestles against the spirit of God in our lives and so often what we find is that the spirit is losing ground because our flesh seems like an all-consuming force in our lives. How easy it is for us to want mercy for me and justice for another. How easy is it for me to want grace for me and judgment for others? Perhaps Jonah had an inkling of the divinely revealed understanding that these people would turn on God after just 40 years. Many commentators bring out this thought that there's there's potential, strong potential, that Jonah, being a prophet of God, he actually understood that the nation of Assyria, this wicked, terror-raising, torture-inflicting people, would be used by God to drag Israel off into more bondage and slavery. In fact, if this is true, you can kind of see what's going on in Jonah's heart, if he knew that these people who had received such grace and mercy at the hand of this God would turn on him and go back to their wicked ways and their destructive ways, in 40 years, that's exactly what happens. 40 years from the time of Jonah preaching, 40 years after mass revival in the, nation, or the city of Nineveh, 40 years later, they will turn on the northern tribes of Israel The 10 tribes of northern Israel were crushed by brutal Assyrian aggression, so much so that the prophet Nahum prophesied in the time about the kind of terror and destruction. Listen to what Nahum 3.3 says. It's on the slide behind me here. It says this. I think it is. Ah, I see what the problem is. We got the wrong verse. I apologize. Let me read it to you instead. It says this, horsemen charging flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. This is the fear. This is what Assyria would do to the nation of Israel. They would cause utter destruction. Consider this. Look, all of this suffering in the mind of Jonah could be avoided, God, if you would have just wiped them out. God, you should have just let the message of judgment sit. You should not have allowed them to repent. God, you should have just wiped them out and you would have spared Israel a whole great deal of hurt and pain. If you saw this coming, let me just ask you this. Is it possible that mercy could make you mad as well? If God had just wiped out Hitler or Stalin or Osama bin Laden... Before their great evil atrocities, all of this evil and suffering they caused, they could have been avoided. God, why did you take them out earlier? Why did you let them do what they did? But God let them live. Why? Why why would God do such a thing? Listen, because of what Jonah knows to be true. Because God, he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He is gracious and merciful. And here's, here's the problem. That's Jonah's complaint. Maybe maybe if I can personalize this for a moment for you, maybe you have experienced great evil in your life too. Maybe you have been deeply hurt by others. Maybe you have suffered greatly and unjustly. And you look at the circumstances in your life and the pain you've gone through and all that you've had to endure in this life and you just, you look at, at, at what's happening with these individuals and you, it seems, right, it seems that God is not only letting them off the hook, he's actually sometimes allowing them to prosper and you know, maybe you think like Asaph in Psalm 73 and you're looking at this and like, God, how do you let the evil ones prosper? How, how come they're not being punished? And you look at that and you say, but God, you could have intervened. You could have stopped this, but you didn't. And I suffered instead. You see, grace means that God may bless people who have wronged you. Grace means that God may bless people from whose sins you have suffered. And when that happens, you may find yourself asking, why doesn't God give them what they deserve? Sometimes God may seem to bless the wrong people. His grace may appear to be misdirected. And our reaction may be, that's not right, God. That's not right. And here, here, Jonah wants to become the advisor to God. He wants to declare to God what is right, what is wrong. He wants to justify himself and his opinion and his thoughts and his feelings. We fail to realize in these moments that God always always meets out justice. Always. We notice here that Jonah declares what so many declare in their anger towards God. And this is your third point, right? Getting angered with God, frustrated with who God is and how he operates, Jonah essentially cries out, God, I'm done. I am finished, God. I quit. Right? I'm no longer working for you. I won't be your mouthpiece to your people any longer, God. There's no way over my dead body. That's what he's saying. I mean, look at, look at the place that Jonah gets to in verse 3. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. I, I think he's a little bit over dramatic here, don't you? But he goes to the utter extreme. Take my life from me. It's better for me to die. You see, Jonah did not want to live in a world and submit to a God who has mercy on and rescues his enemies. This is the ultimate statement that Jonah is making God, if that's who you are and that's how you operate, then here's my declaration to you that's not fair. That's not fair. He is declaring, God, you don't know what you're doing. You know, an expression of our sinful pride is that we, we love to, isn't this true, we love to make so much of our own freedom and so little of God's. We feel that we must be free to choose or reject him, but we do not feel that he should be free to choose or reject us. We love our own autonomy and our own independence, but when it comes to God being autonomous and independent, well, that's a whole other story. Now, most people would not object to God stepping into people's lives to save them, right? Everybody agree? And nobody objects to to the grace of God in stepping into people's lives to save them. The problem people will often struggle with is that God does not seem to step into the lives of everybody and save them. He does this in the lives of some, but not in the lives of others. In Romans chapter 9, 13, Paul addresses in, in, really at the heart of the issue, the very same question that Jonah is asking of God or declaring to God. And listen, here's what grace says, okay? Romans chapter 9, look at that behind me there. It is, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. These six words have caused more turmoil and massive problems in the hearts of so many individuals. But the meaning, you see, people, they kind of finagle about the meaning, and this is what it could mean, but the meaning, I believe, is so crystal clear. Listen, here it is. God is free to go after Jacob, and he is under no obligation to go after Esau. And the Apostle Paul, as he writes these words, he's answering the same objections to God's grace as Jonah is presenting. Can God save whomever he wants? Really, God, can you really do whatever you want? That's what Jonah's concerned about here. I wonder right now if you're wrestling with that thought in your own heart. Really? Really? God, can, can, he, really, can he really save whomever he wants? And if you're wrestling with that question in your heart, I just want you to know that Jonah's wrestling with that exact question here in the text. And Paul wrestles with that exact question because that's the question that that people in, in the church in Rome were wrestling with too, right? If we see the mercy of God, we see the grace of God, we see the salvation of God, and we understand that to its greatest extent, then we understand this, that at the end of the day, God is the one responsible for choosing whom he will save. And that means, right, logically, that he does not save everybody, Jonah thinks that God should save whomever He wants him to save. Jonah thinks that God should punish whomever He wants him to punish. Paul faces this problem head-on in Romans 9:14 and 15, following this verse. Notice what it says. This powerful section. And and just catch this. Here's what he's doing. He's linking back. We're coming full circle back here to the Book of Exodus, chapter 33, verse 15. Right when God had spared Israel, when Moses pled for mercy upon upon on the behalf, excuse me, of the nation of Israel. Right. This is what God declares to Moses right before he displays his character, his loving and gracious character before him. And here's what Paul quotes: For he says to Moses, "I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion." on whom I have compassion. Do you see what God's saying here? He reserves the right to decide whom he will have mercy upon. It's his decision. That's God's business. God's the one who makes those ultimate decisions. Paul would say, As people tried to object in verses 19 and 20, uh, uh, verse 20 is just a stunning, stunning verse that puts us in our place before God. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? You see, God is the one who's ultimately in control. And there's a few things that we can draw from this just by way of of personal application to our own lives. Here's some principles I think that are helpful and I'll tell you why in a minute. First, notice this. Nobody has a right to God's mercy. Nobody. Nobody has a right to God's mercy. It's a gift of God's grace. It's always been a gift of God's grace. Secondly, notice this. God is under no obligation to save anyone. He's not, he's not obligated to. He didn't have to save anybody. Third, just think about this. We don't want what's fair. Trust me, you don't want what's fair. If, God, if, if you're sitting here and saying, like, well, this doesn't sound fair. I'm telling you right now, you don't want what's fair because God doesn't give what's fair. That's what grace is. He doesn't give you what's fair. He doesn't give you what you deserve. He doesn't give you punishment. Instead, he gives you grace. And if all those things are true, and I believe the scriptures are so powerfully clear on this, listen to this, then we have no right to complain, but we are obligated to rejoice. I just want you just to sit on that for just a minute and meditate upon that. If this is true, if you're, if you're in here today and God has saved you, if you have a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ, if you have believed that Jesus Christ is God in flesh, that he lived the perfect life that you could not live, that he died the death that you deserve, that he rose from the grave conquering sin and Satan, that he set you free from bondage and slavery to it, and that he provides for you eternal glory with him. If you believe that, and if that has impacted your heart and is changing your life, listen to this, that is all, all a gift of God's grace for you. All of it. And if that's true, listen, then then all we can do is step back and say, God, I didn't deserve this. You were not obligated to save me. You didn't give me what I deserved. God, instead, you showered your mercy upon me. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You see, all of this is intended by the Apostle Paul to evoke one powerful response. As we understand this, listen to what he says. I'll just read it for you. In chapter 11, verse 33, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been able to be his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him. And through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. And all God's people said, amen. You see, the only thing that he can shout after he understands his grace towards him is, oh, oh, my heart is so full. And you see, Jonah should have gotten to the place He should have been brought to the place even now. And as we read this final verse, listen, where he says this, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. I've got it all wrong, God. And I just, I want you to hear, there's a couple ways to read this verse 4. One, we could read it as this kind of rebuke to Jonah. And that would be right, wouldn't it? (laughs) I mean, part of me wants wants to just lean into this and say, yeah, like, do you do well to be angry? Who do you think you're talking to? But but listen, I don't think that's the sense of what's being communicated. And I don't think it's the sense of what God is doing. I don't think he's rebuking Jonah here because of what comes next. Because what we see, and this is, listen, this is so helpful for us to understand. What we see is this, a man who's so rebellious, who's so hard-hearted, who's turning his back so greatly on the mercy and grace of God, who thinks he knows better than God. Look at what he's receiving in this phrase from God is grace from God. God's saying this. He's saying, look, even though you're an idiot, right? Even though you're a fool, I'm not done with you. I'm not done with you. And so here's how I, I can. Can you picture a, a God, you know, counseling Jonah here with me? You know, think of like a biblical counseling setting. And can you can you see this angry rant from from the counselee Jonah to God in the counselor's office, and God taking off his glasses, leaning across the desk, and saying, "Do you really think you have the right perspective on things? Do you really believe you have a right to be angry?" I think that's the sense in which God is communicating to Jonah here. Jonah, do you really think you're seeing this properly or is it possible that you fail to understand the circumstances properly because you don't see yourself properly? So often our failure to understand God's plan is a failure to understand our own hearts. That's the simple reality. We, we can't make sense of what's, going. look, sometimes there's tension and there's mystery, right? We understand the secret things belong to God, and so there are things that we just, we cannot understand this side of heaven, and we take it by faith that God is in control, that God is doing what is right and good and justice will be meted out in its appropriate ways. But so often, the things that we could understand, we are unable to understand because we're not dealing with the issues in our own hearts, And I believe that's what's going on here with Jonah. I mean, what's happened to Jonah? Do you think about that? Like, how did he get here? This guy's a prophet of God. This guy is is one who has been used to help mature other people in the faith. How how in the world has he got to this place where he can say this kind of stuff to God? God. How can a man who's experienced and celebrated God's grace now be so repulsed by it? How is this possible? And as we look at Jonah and ask, how is this possible? Let us look at our own hearts and ask the same question. What was happening in Jonah's heart can happen in your heart and mine. In fact, I would argue that even now there are, are subtleties, and some of them not so subtle, right? That the spirit of Jonah resides in each one of us in, in various ways and to varying degrees. I want to point this out to you as we maybe dissect this thought. Why is Jonah wrong in his perspective? How has he got to this place? Well, I want you to see this. This is really, really compelling, I believe. But Jonah's prayer is laced with first-person pronouns, okay? So, in other words, in three verses, there are nine times where you hear the words, I or my. You see, the problem for Jonah is the problem of Jonah. God is small and he is big. Once again, we're reminded that our sin and selfishness is our greatest enemy. And when it's all about me, we can't see properly, we can't discern rightly, we can't acknowledge the grace of God the way we ought to. And I think as we just look at Jonah for a minute and kind of do a case study, I think we can see at least three things Three things that seem to have impacted his thinking about the grace of God. And let's just kind of look at those quickly. The first is this, legalism. Legalism. He looks at Nineveh and he produces this equation in his mind. Evil people deserve judgment. The enemies of God's people deserve condemnation. You do what's wrong, and you get judged. This is the way it should work. And what happens here is this. He leaves no room for grace with others, but he expects it for himself. That's a legalist. Oh, I deserve grace. I deserve, but other people? No, law, law, law. Hold them to the demands of the law. Me? No, don't worry about it. I just Grace, grace over here. He holds everyone else under the law and externally presents himself as being more worthy of God's grace. He begins to believe that he is somehow deserving of God's grace. You see, this is self-righteousness to the max, right? And listen, don't, 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 don't believe the lie that this can't happen to you. I don't care how long you've been walking with Christ. and you, know, you just look at your life. Every once in a while, there will be little glimpses that all of a sudden you are beginning to believe that you are somehow worthy of God's grace, deserving of God's grace, And that's a lie. But this is Jonah. He wants it for himself. That's chapter two. He celebrates it for himself. That's all chapter two. When you get to chapter four, how dare you do that for others, God? This prayer is all, in all of its me-centeredness, is reminiscent of the older brother's rant against the father in Luke chapter 15. In fact, keep your finger in Jonah and turn to Luke 15 for a minute. Just consider the parallels as we just look at verses, let's begin at verse 15. 28. Notice this. They're celebrating having a feast because the prodigal son has returned. The father has killed a fattened calf. Verse 27, let's back up. And he said to him, your brother has come home and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was, look at this, notice the parallels. He was angry and he refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him. Do you see the parallels here? It's, it's amazing. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. I love this, so gracious, so compassionate, even with people like Jonah and people like us, right? And he said to him, son, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And Jesus conveyed this story and he painted this older brother as a legalist, because he was speaking to the legalist of all legalists, the Pharisees. You see, Jonah, just like this older son, in one sense thinks he's better than he really is. He's forgotten who he is. He is ruled by self righteousness. And sadly, like so many of us so often, he has forgotten his desperate need for grace. I wonder is there legalism in your heart this morning? Secondly, notice this. Why why did he act this way? How could he do this? Not only was there legalism, there was discrimination. We know for a fact that Jonah was a nationalist, like, like every faithful Jew. They believed that God's blessing was for Israel alone, and they began to think that God's blessing excluded those outside of the community of God, that it was never to be for the pagan Gentiles. Only Israel deserves God's grace and salvation. And Jonah wanted a God by listen to this. Jonah wanted a God who was made in his narrow-hearted image. A God with his own prejudices, who would only come into fellowship with sinners under certain restrictive conditions. And before you throw stones at Jonah, just ask yourself this question: do I do the same thing? Do I discriminate against people when it comes to being around them, uh, fellowshipping with them, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with them, right? right. I, th- their, their ethnicity is different. Their culture is different. Their socioeconomic status is different. They're not like me. I would never get along with them. I'm excluding them. You see, we're not that different than Jonah. Finally, and I think this is really at the heart of it, you want to know why I think Jonah was so upset with God? Preservation. Preservation. He believes he can no longer represent God, and he prays for death. You think about that for a second. Over my dead body, God, just kill me now. I cannot go on. How can he say that? Like, that is so extreme. What would motivate that kind of reaction to the grace of God? I mean, even if you're upset, to go to the lengths of saying, I no longer want to live. Why? What would motivate that thought? Listen, it's preservation of his reputation. Remember when we began this book, we said, you know, Jonah, he's so consumed with his own comfort, his own lifestyle. He's so consumed. Like, he's got it Great. He's prophesying to people who love him. He's prophesying during a time of great blessing, right? This is awesome. Listen, he's prophesying prophecies that tell that God's enemies are being pushed back, right? People like the Assyrians are being held at bay. Now think about this for a moment. He's done his job. He's gone in. He's declared judgment. He's seen the salvation of God. Where does he go now? Home, (laughs) He's he's going to walk back into the same village he came from. He's going to go back to the same people he's been living with, the same people who have loved him and honored him and cherished him. Look at what you've done for Israel. And he's got to go and say, oh, by the way, uh, I was just used by God to declare God's salvation for the people we hate the most, the people we fear the most, the people who are going to come and destroy us in 40 years. Can you just, can you just, his reputation would be in shreds. You did What? What what are you thinking? Why didn't you flee to Tarshish? I tried, I tried. How could you let God do this? I told him what I thought. I'm not happy about this either. Jonah wants to die because his mission succeeded. His reputation is all but dead. Jonah knew, listen, that if this mission was to succeed, it would be costly to him. And what he prized the most above all things was his own reputation. If he was to walk with God and be used by God and transformed by God, it would mean that Jonah would need to make himself of no reputation. He would have to get incredibly low, lower than he's ever been before. Jonah sat outside of Nineveh facing the greatest decision of his life and maybe some of you are facing this very decision right now. Regardless of where you're at in your life, I believe we face this in an ongoing capacity. Are we willing to die to our own reputation? I wonder if you just take a moment and examine your heart. Are you willing to die to your reputation? Are you willing to die to the comforts of this life? Are you willing to die to the power and the prestige and the honor and the glory of man? Are you willing to lay it all aside for the sake of Jesus Christ? Did you know that that is the very call of salvation? No one can come to me unless he's willing to hate his own life, die to self, to declare I'm no longer my own, but I've been bought with a price. But you see, the blueprint for this kind of radical self-denial is found in the greater Jonah, isn't it? It's found in Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ, listen to these words from Paul. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The king of heaven gave up his reputation to become one of us, that he might rescue us. The real question for Jonah and for us is this, are we willing to be like Christ? This is the heart of the matter. And really, it's always the heart of the matter. Does God's grace cause you this morning to resent or to rejoice? Does it make you spiteful this morning or does it make you thankful? All of us have the seeds of the spirit of Jonah within us. Every one of us has to wrestle with our heart and the tendencies within to be diverted from God and to reject and to dismiss and to despise the grace of God. We're all capable of this, and some of us are doing it right now. What's truly amazing is that this God, in his grace, lovingly saves and deals with sinners like that. That's what God is doing with Jonah. He's not kicking him to the curb and he's not kicking you to the curb. He's not despising you and he's not punishing you and he's not saying, how dare you? What he's saying is this. Do you really believe your perspective on me is right? Come and see. Come and see that I am good. Come and see that I have showered my grace and my mercy upon you. Come and see that my love overflows to you. He's done that in Christ Jesus, hasn't he? He's taken those who are far off and he's brought us near. He's taken enemies and made them his friends. He continues to do that every day of our lives. Isn't that awesome news? Every day of our lives, in our rebellion, God relentlessly, relentlessly pursues us. What an amazing God of grace we serve.